0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Jonathan Rapping is a nationally renowned criminal justice innovator who is the founder and president of Gideon's Promise, a 501c3 nonprofit public defender advocacy organization that provides training leadership development, and mentorship to improve the quality of legal representation for clients and the communities they serve. His book by the name of Gideon's Promise will be out in May. Welcome to the show, Jonathan.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So can you talk about your work and uh, what Gideon's Promise does and uh, what you're doing right now?
1: Sure. So so I am currently, um, I, I'm a, a, a law school professor at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. And I also, um, along with my wife and co-founder, Elias Skia, run Gideon's Promise. Gideon's Promise is an organization that uh, trains, mentors, supports public defenders in some of the nation's most dysfunctional criminal justice systems. Uh, with an eye towards building a movement of defenders who will ultimately um, transform criminal justice in those places. So what does that mean? We partner with public defender offices. We now have partnerships in more than half the states in the country. Um, When we partner with those offices, we work with lawyers at every level, from new lawyers to mid-level lawyers to supervisors to leaders to really think about what it means to represent people in the communities public defenders serve, how we provide them the kind of, of, of service that you or I would want for our loved ones, and ultimately how we build organizations that can be the engines to drive culture change in systems that have come to accept um, an astonishingly, astonishingly low standard of justice for poor
0: people. So in a minute, I'll, I'll have you kind of drill into some of that. But let, let's mm-hmm. talk about the book, which is coming out in a few months. Uh, what, what is the book about?
1: The book is really, it, it, it's got a couple of themes. One theme is that our criminal justice challenge is really a cultural challenge and that we have to look beyond sort of the, the usual policy fixes to transform the culture of our criminal justice system. The other theme is that if we are going to transform that criminal justice culture, public defenders have to be centered in that conversation. And those themes are really brought out through the story of the building of Gideon's promise over the last uh, decade and a half.
0: And, And so what do some of those stories look like? I mean, on the ground, what are you dealing with?
1: Well, the the, the the story, so so I should start by saying I started my career in Washington, D.C., which is really sort of a model public defender office, and I was fortunate to have manageable caseloads. I had the resources I needed to give every person the kind of representation they deserved. I, I was given great training. I was surrounded by a supportive and inspired community of public defenders, and, and I probably naively thought that that was more common than I now realize. I, I moved to Georgia in 2004 when Georgia first started a statewide public defender system. Spent a couple years in Georgia, went to New Orleans two years later after Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, to help with the effort to rebuild that office. I did work in Alabama and Mississippi. And I really started to see systems where our uh, human beings weren't even seen as human beings. They were treated as case files. They were processed quickly and public defenders were expected to simply go along and triage, move cases. Uh, you ask what it looks like. One story I talk about in the book is the first time I walked into a courtroom in Louisiana and there were just people scattered everywhere Um, You didn't know who the defenders were. You didn't know who the prosecutors were, but the judge was on the bench, and the judge started calling out names, and the judge would call a name, and 10, 15 seconds later, they'd move on to the next name, and you never saw a lawyer stand next to uh, uh, their client, and after about 10 or 15 names, the judge calls out a name, and there's no response, and he turns to a group of men in orange jumpsuits lined up. Uh, to his right and says, "Is Mr. So-and-so here. And a man stood up. The judge said, Mr. So-and-so, where's your lawyer? The man said, I haven't seen my lawyer since I got locked up. The judge said, how long have you been locked up? The man said, 70 days. And the judge just went on with the processing, calling names. And And what really struck me, even more than the fact that a man was locked up for 70 days without a lawyer, was that literally no one was phased? The judge wasn't phased, the prosecutors weren't phased, and the lawyers weren't phased. It was what they had come to accept as what justice looks like for poor people. Literally, that injustice became normalized in that courtroom, and so that's really what I mean by culture. That's the that is the the, the challenge that Gideon's promise seeks to uh, address and that the book sort of really kind of uh, talks about taking on.
0: And those are the kind of stories I'm really interested because I've heard variations of the same thing that you said, and I'm sure I didn't read it originally from you. So somebody else saw the same thing happen and, and wrote about it in some publication that I read. Um, You know, and my experience in the court has been probably similar to what yours was in in Washington D.C. I um, you know we work on the ground in places like San Francisco and Yolo County in California and Sacramento. They have very good public defender's offices. They're all well funded. They're professional. Everybody gets representation. But then you read these stories of you know public defenders with thousand person caseloads uh, for a year. Um, you know, public defenders' offices that uh, don't have enough money for uh, things like hiring experts or uh, basic investigations, it, it becomes a nightmare really quickly, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So so I, I think what, you, what you're seeing in San Francisco, um, you know, is probably closer to what I experienced for a decade in Washington, D.C., um, it might look like that in other places, you know, places like the Bronx or Brooklyn, where they have very good public defender systems. But those really are the exceptions. The rule all across America is, is, is systems that are overwhelmed and under-resourced. And lawyers, many of them very well-intentioned, many of them really good lawyers, but forced to try to do kind of work that that, that Superman or Wonder Woman couldn't do. And so after a while, those lawyers, as well-intentioned as they may be, they either get beaten down and they quit, or they start to become resigned to the status quo. They start to process cases, and they start to become part of the problem. Again, not because they're bad people, but because they are products of a system. That doesn't care about marginalized communities.
0: And I just want to close one circle here. You know, the courtrooms that I've seen, even with excellent representation, there are all sorts of problems. So you can only imagine. I, I just didn't want the the readers to uh, uh, not understand that you know there are problems in San Francisco. Uh, that's why they've elected a reform DA, for instance. Uh, even though, you know, they're probably getting as good a representation as anyone in the country there.
1: So so I, I couldn't agree with you more. I spent a decade in Washington, D.C., and there wasn't a week when I didn't talk to my colleagues in the public defender's office about the overwhelming injustice that we were seeing in D.C. Superior Court. We were seeing prosecutors who weren't disclosing evidence that they were required to disclose. We saw judges who very much cared about moving dockets more than justice at times. Um, you know, So certainly I, I felt for 10 years like I was working in DC in a system that was not at all just. And I've now been introduced to systems where there's even more injustice. So So I am with you. I think we're talking about levels of injustice, but all across America, we have accepted a criminal legal system that does to poor families' children something that we would never accept for our own children. Doesn't matter if you're in D.C., San Francisco, or Alabama, it's a matter of degrees.
0: So having said all of that, What was your goal in writing the book?
1: So my goal in writing the book, I think, was really to, um, to center public defenders in this sort of, um, in a national conversation about criminal justice reform that has been happening for the last few years. So probably about five years ago, the nation really finally started to turn its attention to the fact that our criminal justice system doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And, and, and there's been sort of a bipartisan consensus around that. And you hear talk about a lot of reforms like bail reform, sentencing reform, um, this idea that we need reform minded prosecutors, all of which are obviously really important reforms, but what was consistently absent from the conversation were public defenders. And I know from my work, what I understood was that none of those reforms can work if you don't have a strong, committed, well-trained community of public defenders. You could have bail reform, but if you don't have Lawyers standing in court, making sure the judge knows the human being standing before them. The judge can't make appropriate release conditions. On the back end, you can have sentencing reform and you can do away with mandatory minimum sentences that tie judges' hands. But if the judge doesn't know that human being standing there, how can they fashion the appropriate outcome. And when you talk about reform-minded prosecutors, even the best prosecutor can't act on their most progressive instincts if they don't know anything about that human being standing there, right? The, The human being is introduced to every actor in the system through the public defender. So I wrote this book in response to what I saw as a gaping omission in the broader conversation around criminal justice reform and it was gaping because i think it is the most important piece of that reform story so i hope this book can help address that to some degree
0: now you guys of course are named after gideon um, who if the readers aren't familiar was the plaintiff in a lawsuit about 55 years ago i think 1964 i want to say um 1963 63 i was off sorry um gideon versus wainwright um w- was established so so we're talking 57 years ago um why are we where we are in the system now
1: well that that's an interesting question right gideon gideon in 1963 the supreme court and gideon recognized that really the lawyer is the vehicle through which justice is accessed in the courts. And it said that we can't have equal justice if people without means don't have lawyers, right? And and, and I think it obviously the kinds of lawyers that people with means would hire, right? Because we're talking about equal justice. And, and and I think you have to understand that Gideon was decided in 1963. So it was a time when we were grappling with the fact that we had failed to provide basic civil and human rights to African Americans for decades. And we are finally coming to grapple with that. We had deprived those civil and human rights to African Americans in every walk of life when it comes to education, voting rights, commerce. And criminal justice was certainly one of those areas where civil rights were violated routinely. Right? We had just you know, 20 years earlier, had the, the infamous case of the Scottsboro Boys, nine children, pulled off a train, accused of raping two white women, almost certainly innocent, but given lawyers that morning who were unprepared and and not really committed to their defense. They went to trial that afternoon, and within days, eight of the nine were sentenced to die, and only the 13-year-old was given life without Parole. So, so those stories were a part of our sort of, our, our embarrassing, um, record when it comes to civil and human rights. And Gideon was really established, uh, to, to, to rectify, um, the civil rights problem we were having in our courtroom. It was an era when we applauded that. It wasn't more than a decade after that that the civil rights movement happened. That politicians like George Wallace started to realize that they could galvanize white working class voters by labeling civil rights protesters as menaces to society, as threats to the moral fabric of the country. And they, they introduced a tough one crime narrative to really divide the country and branded poor people, people of color as Dangerous as they fueled this tough on crime narrative. And, and that tough on crime narrative has had a hold on our nation for 50 years. And because of that tough on crime narrative, we have never had the will to fulfill that promise that Gideon made that everyone who comes to court should get justice through a competent, capable, committed public defender.
0: So you see the major obstacle to indigent defense at this point is the lack of commitment, lack of will uh, to make sure that everybody is defended.
1: Yeah, I, I think p- to put another way, and this is not my original idea, lots of people, the, the scholar Michelle Alexander writes about this in the Do Jim Crow, Ava DuVernay in her amazing documentary 13th, I think the argument has been made that that really the narrative that shapes our approach to criminal justice is just a narrative that has been around for 400 years that sees some communities, communities of color, uh, as, as others, as dangerous. And it's that narrative that drives us to use our criminal justice system to keep people that we see as the us's I'm sorry, the thems, away from the us's, right, using our criminal justice system. And so ultimately, we can have all the policy fixes we want. If we don't start changing that narrative, if we don't start humanizing the people that we have labeled as dangerous, we're not really going to have the will to live up to Gideon's promise.
0: So is it your view that The system works, but for the lack of resources, or is it more than that?
1: Uh, I I would argue it is certainly more than that. So we absolutely need, uh, I I think you could say we need more resources. Another way to look at it is we need to shrink the system. Maybe the system is just too big, but, but the resource imbalance certainly is a problem. There are structural challenges, challenges where judges appoint public defenders, and then those public defenders feel more beholden to the judges who would rather move cases quickly than to the people that they serve. So so those are certainly problems, but if we don't deal with the cultural challenge, those fixes alone won't get us there. There, There's another story I talk about in the book, and it's, it's a story of a man who was elected in Tennessee to be the the spokesperson for all of the public defenders in the state. He was the president of the Tennessee Public Defender Commission. And he was at a budget hearing, and he was asked the simple question, do you have enough resources? He said, listen, let me tell you, I've got a five-county district. He said, I have five courthouses. He said, I have five lawyers and one investigator. He went on to say, last year we closed 4,000 cases, right? That's 800 cases per lawyer. And then he said, So let me assure you, you have one district in Tennessee that is blessed. We have enough. He talked about his seasoned lawyers as being efficient, as being time savers, as being good at processing. Those were literally the adjectives he used with admiration to describe his lawyers. And I tell that story, I I don't tell that story to pick on that lawyer in particular. I, I always say I don't believe that man came out of law school 30 years ago saying, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to help lock up 800 people a year. I think I'll become a public defender. right? I I think he was very slowly and subtly shaped by a system into a lawyer he never would have recognized as a law student. And now 30 years later, you could give him all of the resources you want. You could give him all of the independence from judicial control that you want. He's lost sight of what a public defender looks like. So if we don't fix that cultural challenge, the other legislative reforms alone will not get us to where we need to go. They're important, but not ne- but not sufficient.
0: Uh, let me play a little devil's advocate, because uh, I, I don't necessarily disagree with what you say, but... It seems to me that part of why that culture went the way it did is that they got beat down by 800 cases a year. Am I wrong?
1: No, I, and I don't think what you're saying is inconsistent at all with what I'm saying. So, so I, I agree with you. If you ask what is the reason why we have this culture, certainly a part of the reason is that we have given lawyers more cases than they can handle without the resources that they need, and they have learned to process. But now that we're in a place where they've learned to process, that they've normalized injustice, that they're shaped by that culture of taking shortcuts, of triaging, just putting the money back in doesn't fix it. We've got to undo that culture, and that's a process.
0: And that makes sense. I, I mean, it, it's kind of the same thing when you're talking about inner city teachers. Uh, so, you know, inner city teachers, they don't get paid a whole lot. Uh, they go into a classroom, the classroom is dysfunctional. They're often young and inexperienced, they're going in with the best intentions. And they either drop out of the system very quickly, or they they simply become, as as you put it, kind of this administrator who uh, you know pushes the paper along, pushes the students out the door, get gets the students through, but but doesn't necessarily make the change. I guess the question that I would then have is, how do you deal with the cultural issue at the same time that you have to figure out where the resources are coming from?
1: Yeah, so I think that we are certainly fighting this battle on a couple of fronts. And so we absolutely need to be pushing on the legislative and policy front for, again, either more resources or a smaller system or some combination of those. But at the same time, we have to be pushing on another front to transform the culture. And so when I first moved to Georgia and kind of recognized this cultural issue, and no one in the criminal justice arena was really talking about culture. So I, I started doing all this research into into culture, and I couldn't find anything in the criminal justice arena. But, but in the business arena, uh, experts really do talk about culture. And what I sort of learned from my research in the in the business and management field, was that ultimately culture is a function of your values. And if you want to change culture, you have to introduce a new value set. You have to get an organization of people to embrace those values and internalize those values until they become second nature. That that can take a generation. And so what we started doing with Public Defenders was a model that we call values-based recruitment. Values based training and values based mentoring. We identify those values. We call them client centered values, the values um, that lawyers we would hire would possess. And we recruit lawyers who are open to, to embracing those values. We've designed tra- a training programs that not just teach skills, but teach lawyers how to operate consistently with those values in systems that are pressuring them to abandon those values. And then we've developed a mentorship program where our mentors are trained to help those lawyers maintain those values in the real world when they are being pressured to do otherwise. And our leaders are are learned to to make decisions consistent with those values, to to support their lawyers and reinforce the values that we're teaching. And so it's a process of transforming the organization, the public defender organization, from an organization that might be beholden to judges or funders or politicians, to an organization that is beholden to the community that it serves. Once that organization is built, that organization then can be the the vehicle that those in, that introduces those values into the system by pushing back against judges, prosecutors, politicians, and the assumptions they have about public defenders and the people they serve.
0: So, your description sounds a lot like what I see when I go into San Francisco and watch the public defender's office there. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Adachi, the the late public defender in San Francisco really did instill a culture. You know, they they will fight every single case. They will fight from uh, the custodial situation all the way until post sentencing. Um, And, you know, I've I've not seen uh, an office that's embraced that concept. Can you discuss maybe an example of an office that you went into and helped bring about this cultural change.
1: Yeah. And and let me say, I want to just respond to your question by saying um, Jeff Adachi is the perfect example of what we want to develop in public defender leaders across the country. Jeff was someone who inspired Public defenders across the country, and who, who was a role model to many of us, including me, and 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 his successor, um, is is equally committed uh, to to those values. So I think you're right that San Francisco is um, is at one extreme. On the other end of the extreme, uh, when you ask, are there office, can I describe an office we went into and sort of transformed culture? You know, to go back to New Orleans, where in 2006, after Hurricane Katrina, there really was no public defender office. There was, you know, there was a a a room in the courthouse with some cubicles. All of the lawyers were part-time public defenders. They received a small salary to handle all the cases, but most of their money, most of their 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 income was made through outside cases. They would rarely meet their clients outside of court. They'd walk into court. They would only talk to their client in a crowded courtroom. They were processing cases, few trials, lots of pleas, and they were beholden to the judges they worked with. And when we got to New Orleans, I was invited there by by a few lawyers who were part of the management team that we're rebuilding in that office, two of them who came from the same public defender office that I did. Um, we, the first thing we did was we actually built an office where every lawyer had their own office and telephone and computer. And you might say, well, isn't that obvious? But that wasn't the case in New Orleans. There was no investigation being done in New Orleans. We built a staff of investigators. We built a staff of social workers. Now, there were resources that came in in the wake of Hurricane Katrina to help with that. But there was also a lot of resistance. Many of the part-time public defenders were told, you either have to go full-time or you're out. And many of them left. Um, And judges were really resistant. We started bringing in young lawyers. And there were stories. These young lawyers would walk into court and the judges would ask, What high school are you from? Because they wanted to know if we were bringing in lawyers from the outside. We recruited a class of of 10 amazing lawyers from across the country because I believe that public defenders should, just like any business, hire the best people they could find, not just the the next local unemployed lawyer. And we brought in 10 lawyers. One graduated from Harvard. They were immediately dubbed the Harvard 10, and that was not meant as a compliment. Lawyers were held in contempt when they would push back and fight. Today, that office is completely different. Today, that office has a professional staff. Their ethos is exactly what you described in San Francisco. They may not have the resources, they still have terrible caseload challenges, but the lawyers are absolutely committed to the people they serve. They push back, and they've started to get judges and prosecutors accept a whole different kind of public defender they aren't they, they've gone from being seen as part of the problem in the New Orleans community to a real ally in the fight for justice
0: so so that's exactly you know what I was interested in hearing and and I guess the next question is how do you then take that model and and replicated across the country because you know this is really a county by county, state by state issue.
1: Yeah, and, and so so obviously, I think as you identify it, it's an uphill climb. Um, when we started in two thousand seven, we had two partner offices: one was New Orleans, and one was Atlanta. You know, we now have um, you know over four dozen, but it's taken us fifteen years to get there. And we still have a long, long way to go. So, so uh, the thing you have to understand is every system is so unique. There's no one way of delivering uh, uh, indigent defense services in this country. Only, uh, only a, a, a fraction of the counties in the nation even have full-time public defender offices. Many of them rely on private lawyers who either take court appointments or have contracts. So so every system is different, but I would say what is common is step one, we look for leadership that embraces the same value set. Once we find a leader that embraces the value set and they want to be a part of, uh, of the movement we're building, um, we invite them to, uh, we have a program for leaders We bring them into the community, and we start to work with them to think about how we can get their lawyers into our programming for new public defenders. And those new public defenders are part of an effort to transform the culture internally. And then through the leadership program, those leaders are connected to an amazing group of chief defenders nationally who have a lot of creative ideas about how you push for change externally. And so it's slow. And the pace of change is different in every jurisdiction we partner with, but in every jurisdiction, there is leadership committed to serving the people that they represent, again, in the way that we would want our own loved ones to be to, to be represented.
0: So, you know, going back to New Orleans, um, given the caseload concerns, how... Are lawyers getting around that issue to be able to provide aggressive indigent defense in the in the face that you know they have several hundred cases a year?
1: Right. So, so I mean, unfortunately, if you're a public defender in America, in almost any county in America, um, part of the job is triage. Right. It is. There's no way with 300 cases you can give every person the representation they deserve. And so what we're trying to teach our lawyers is for the lawyers on the front line. How can you try to provide as many people the representation they deserve as possible and not not get defeated by all of the people that you can't serve because of forces beyond your control? knowing that there's leadership working to try to change the system so that you don't have to be put in that awful situation in the first place but but one thing we say to our lawyers is you know look it feels awful to have to triage no one should have to do that when we're talking about justice but the reality is if if our lawyers with 300 cases aren't figuring out how to give 50 people a year the representation they deserve and they leave, there might be a lawyer that comes in that is resigned to just processing all 300. And so what we've seen in New Orleans is every one of our lawyers in New Orleans has certainly has clients who they cannot give the service they deserve. But because they are taking some Segment of the people they represent and introducing a new way of practice, having trials, litigating legal issues, pushing back against the system. Over 15 years, they've raised the expectations in New Orleans for what good lawyering looks like. No longer is simply pleading someone out the day you meet them seen as good lawyering. No longer can a lawyer look at a police report and say, I know this case should be a plea. No longer is that seen as good lawyering. Lawyers may still have to do it, but they're raising expectations about what justice looks like by pushing back in as many cases as possible. And that's meaningful.
0: Indeed. Um, and, and so is there a way that you, you feel like we can get uh, on top of the issue of things like caseload and funding and, investigators and experts
1: yeah so uh, that, that is that is largely what this book is about is is what we need are all of the people on the right on the left in the middle who care about all of these criminal justice reform issues bail sentencing progressive prosecution to add to the menu of fixes that they prioritize. This issue we're talking about right now. I don't believe you can have a progressive prosecutor. Who, I, I don't believe a, press, a prosecutor can truly claim to be progressive if they're not standing up every day demanding that the public defender have a manageable caseload and the resources they need. I don't believe that you could have someone who's truly committed to bail reform or sentencing reform if they're not advocating for, for lawyers who are able to humanize people in the courts, right? So, so, so the only way we get on top of this issue is to elevate public defense to the level of priority that we have for the last five years started to give other issues in the criminal justice arena.
0: Well, very good. We're just about out of time. Did you have any other closing thoughts uh, before we have to say goodbye?
1: Yeah, I do want to just say one last thing. Since you're in the Bay Area, I need to give a shout out to someone there named Raj Jayadev and his organization, Silicon Valley Debug. Because what Raj did was, Raj is not a lawyer. He's a community organizer. But he developed a model called participatory defense. And what he recognized was public defender offices have to be the voice for communities that are bearing the brunt of our approach to criminal justice. And far too often, communities don't trust public defenders. Public defenders don't know how to work with communities. And what Raj's model really has done, and we've embraced it and brought it into our work, is to build partnerships between public defenders and community organizations so they see themselves as allies. So public defenders can tap into community resources to improve outcomes for the people they serve. So communities... Can rally around public defenders when there are issues that are maybe being voted on locally that impact public defenders, um, and the two see themselves as critical uh, allies in this larger fight for racial economic justice um, so I just felt since you're calling from the Bay Area I should mention that and be clear that 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 public defenders i mean their work really is only important because there are communities who um, are very important, and we, we can't talk about the importance of public defense without talking about uh, the importance of lifting up those communities.
0: Yeah, we've seen some of their work, and uh, uh, San Francisco is starting to embrace the participatory defense model. Um, starting to see it a little bit elsewhere in Northern California as well, so it seems to be an idea that is spreading. As it should. Well, thank you very much for being on our show today.
1: Yes, I appreciate the, uh, the invitation.
0: That was Jonathan Rapping, who is from Gideon's Promise. He's, his book is due out May 5th. And from listening to this, I think everybody who's listening uh, is going to want to buy that book. Um, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode.